This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well good morning Anchor, so good to see you here this morning whether you are in the room or watching live on the live stream. We are so glad that you have chosen to join us today and it's so nice to see Faces, some faces that I have not seen for so long, either because you're back in the country or this is your first time back at Anchor. It's so nice to see people trickling back into the room. And just a, a quick um, word of explanation about how we have been treating our live stream services. I know lots of different churches are using them in different ways, but at the moment, the way that we are treating our live stream is that it is an on ramp into this space and not a replacement for this space. We recognize that there are many of you who are still choosing to watch online for various reasons, and we're, that's totally fine, that's what it's there for, but not as a replacement for gathering together. We are a people who believe uh, in community, in family. This is an embodied worship, uh, and so uh, we, we love to see faces here on Sunday morning. It is so glad, we're so glad to See many of you back here today. I'm going to be preaching from Matthew 11, so please keep your Bibles open there and join me as I pray for us. So let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. And this morning, God, as we sit humbly under your word, we, we want to say that at times we wrestle to believe these words. There are seasons in our life where we find it difficult to muster up faith. God, this isn't always easy. We live in a city, in a world that mocks us for believing in a divine being. God, our experiences so often aren't the way that we hoped or dreamed they would turn out. And yet, none of that makes you afraid. You're in complete control. And so, Father, I pray that wherever we are at this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes to encounter Jesus again today. I pray that you would be at work by your Spirit now. As your word goes out, that you would be pleased to not let it return to you empty, but achieve the purposes that you have set for it. And Father, we pray that you would speak now. We ask it in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said, Amen, Amen. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, um, uh, that awkward, uncomfortable moment where your expectations just do not seem to be met the way that you were hoping they would be. And uh, we're familiar with this all the time. It could be as simple as going out for a meal at the pub and you order something on the menu that in written form looks delicious, but when it lands on your plate in front of you, you're struck with instant food envy because it's like small, you know, it's like an entree size. You're like, I was expecting a lot bigger than that. Or, you know, a burger that costs $30 and it's dry and the bun's stale. And, you know, so your expectation and reality is something very different. Maybe it's a job. You apply for a job and the position description seems to just match your passions and your calling and your gifts perfectly. But then after a week on the job, you realize this is not what you were expecting. I remember one of those moments when uh, I applied for a job at Toys R Us as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, just finished high school, and I'd spent most of my time stacking shelves at Coles. I was a very good shelf stacker, and I needed to progress up the career chain to Toys R Us. And so I went to Toys R Us and got this job 
working as a shelf stacker, but what it really was, do I need a different microphone? Is this, where's battery? All right, where's that handheld, James? There we go. Excellent. Where was I? Toys R Us, right? Is that where I was? Toys R Us. I applied for this job as a shelf stacker, and what I'd realized very quickly after two shifts was that they'd employed a whole bunch of us young guys, really in order to fit out their shop and save costs of paying laborers to do that, instead pay 17-year-old kids to do it. And I came home every shift just covered in dirt from pulling apart steel shelving and, and, and resurrecting it again. And so my next shift, I just didn't turn up. I didn't tell them I wasn't coming. I was like so angry. They're like, that's it. I'm just not turning up and I'm not telling them. And I don't care if they don't pay me. It's, a, it's the gap between expectation and reality. Not that I would suggest that, just so you know. It's probably a good idea to tell them that you resign. Maybe it's a haircut, right? You've got an Instagram picture of a haircut that you really like and you go to the, the barber or you go to the hairdressers. This is what I would like to look like and when... You finish, it looks nothing like what you were hoping it would look like. That gap between expectation and reality. I also remember a trip that we did. Tash and I, we went to the west coast of of the USA in 2013. Judah was six months old. And we had this expectation of having this wonderful trip where we'd go out and sightsee and explore the cities. And the reality was, with a six-month-old, we spent most of our time in a hotel room waiting for him to sleep or wake up. We were in bed at 7 o'clock every night with the curtains drawn, watching movies on like volume number one so it wouldn't wake him up. It was not the type of trip that we were hoping for. It's the gap between expectation and reality. And in that gap, that gap is where uh, it, it is the fertile soil of discouragement and disappointment and doubt. That is often where doubt begins to surface, particularly when that gap between expectation and reality has to do with our faith. You know, we live in a a cultural moment where skepticism is the air that we breathe, right? Everything about our world is about skepticism. Doubt is often seen as a virtue. The skeptic is woke, those who have faith are naive. And any form of confidence, particularly a form of religious confidence, is viewed as arrogance and intellectual humility is for those who are agnostic and doubters. That's the the cultural climate we live in. But you add to that, we also live in this weird Christian subcultural climate as well, right? And so if you come from a more experiential version of faith, you would have been told that doubts are unhelpful, they're bad, and so just ignore them. Just have faith, just believe, But the opposite end of the spectrum, the progressive version of Christianity says, no, doubts are great. Doubts are perfect. Just sit in the mess and the ambiguity. And and really what one is afraid of asking questions, the other is actually afraid of finding answers. Doubt. What do we do with doubts? I want to suggest to you that doubt is actually a very normal Christian experience. Everyone who has faith, everyone who believes will encounter Uh, quota of doubt. In fact, Justin Holcomb says this, very helpful quote. He says, we should not be afraid of doubt. There is no believing without some doubting. And believing is all the more robust for having experienced its doubts. Khalil Gibran says, doubt, I love this quote, doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith 
is his twin brother. Doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. If we believe that doubt is the opposite of faith, or if we don't believe, rather, that doubt is the opposite of faith because it's not, we will be more open and honest with ourselves and open and honest with God. What do we do with our doubts and our disappointments over God? Well, this morning we encounter a character. We walk in the shoes of a new character. His name is John the Baptist. And uh, that's his job description. It's not so much his denominational association like John the Anglican or John the Presbyterian or John the Pentecostal or, or some hybrid of it like John the Charismanglican or John the Baptocostal or John the... Pre- I don't know if you know, do Presbycostals even exist? I don't think they do. But uh, that, that's his job, right? He is John the Baptizer, not so much John the Baptist. And he is Jesus' second, third, twice removed, whatever, cousin. He's related to Jesus. He's born six months before Jesus. If you remember at the start of Luke's gospel, Mary comes to visit her auntie Elizabeth. And as she turns up, the baby that Elizabeth is carrying, who happens to be John the Baptizer, leaps in her womb in, in his Uh, In utero life experience, he recognizes something about Jesus. And John steps into his ministry, a ministry that we see here that Jesus outlines for us. It's a ministry of prophetically calling Israel to prepare for the Messiah. John is in the wilderness wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey and calling Israel to be ready for the coming of the one. He is a prophet He is a prophet like the prophets of old. And here is John, Jesus' second, third, twice removed cousin. And he is preaching a message of repentance and he's preaching a message of judgment. John is the one who is calling out Israel's leaders. He says to them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If you are the leaders of Israel, live like it. He calls out the secular leadership. He calls out Herod for taking his brother's wife as his own wife. And he gets in a lot of trouble for that, as we see later on in the Gospels. John is a prophet who is cut out of the very mold of the Old Testament prophets. His ministry, as we see there in verse 10, is one of preparing the way for the Messiah. That's a quote from Malachi chapter 3. That before the the day of the Lord, there will be one who comes that will prepare the way for the Messiah. John, as he first encounters Jesus Uh, in his ministry, is baptizing people by the Jordan River. And Jesus turns up and John makes this confession of Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is a profound recognition that was given to John by the Holy Spirit. You see, God said to John, the person on whom you see the Spirit of God rest like a dove, that is the one. That is the Messiah. That is the promised anointed one who is to come. And John sees Jesus. He recognizes it. And he speaks to that identity, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. John baptizes him and encounters that moment where the Spirit of God descends on Jesus. He hears a voice from heaven which says, This is my beloved Son. With him I'm well pleased. He's caught up in the very center of the purposes of God. And he has seen and tasted so much of what Jesus has come to do. And yet here in uh, Matthew 11, he is experiencing a dark night of the soul. Doubts, 
begin to arise for John. There's a gap between his expectations and reality and discouragement and disappointment have begun to be sown and are fertilized. You know, sometimes our doubts are merely intellectual objections. Right? We, we, there are things about our faith that we just cannot seem to understand. We wrestle with them, whether it's you know, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity, or whether it's God's uh, fierce love or fierce judgment. Like, how do those things work together? And we just don't understand them. And there's an intellectual doubt, an intellectual objection that we experience. The reality is none of those doubts are new. Right? The church has been wrestling with many of those things for the last 2,000 years, and there is some incredible answers to those questions. But doubt is sometimes an issue of the head. But doubt is also sometimes a product of our hearts and not our heads. We experience pain. We walk through a season of suffering. We begin to see the yawning gap between what we'd hoped for and what our life is actually like. God is slow to answer the prayers that we've been praying for years. And sometimes it leaves us questioning. It leaves us doubting. It, it leaves us with an, a hesitant faith. And we wrestle. And that's where John finds himself. Have a look at what it says in chapter 11, verse 2. When John, who was in prison, he's in prison because he's called out Herod for being an adulterer and having an affair and stealing his brother's wife. And his wife is not too happy with John calling out the, the leader of the land. She has murderous intent for John, as we will see. So John's in prison. He heard about the deeds of the Messiah. And he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? You know, when you um, perhaps you meet someone at church, Across the room, you see them, you think, I, I like them. You talk to them after church, you, you hang out, you go out on a few dates, and, um, and then you start seeing each other. And a few months into the relationship, you, um, you begin to notice a few little idiosyncrasies that you kind of don't like. It's like the, the, the way that they laugh, it's just, ugh, it's really off-putting or... They pick their nose or, you know, they cannot drive to save their lives. There's something about the other person that you begin to think, is this the one or should I begin to look for someone else? <laughs> and just so you know, there is no perfect one. For all of you who are scanning the market for the perfect one, they probably don't exist. In fact, they don't exist at all. But that's John's experience, right? He's here and he's thinking to himself, is Jesus the one? Or should I be looking for someone else? His expectations were not met. You see, John had a message that the Messiah was coming. And when he came, he would bring a baptism of fire and spirit. He predicted that the Messiah would come and cast the wicked into the furnace. And none of these things have been taking place. So John begins to question whether or not Jesus is the one. John had expected that the Messiah would come with power and with force and with might. And here is the Messiah and he's spending time with sinners and lepers and the outcast. You add to that the problem of pain that John is experiencing. He's in jail. 
He's living in fear for his very life. What, what will happen to him? Will he get out? Won't he get out? Is this a life sentence? Who knows? He's, he's in isolation. He's lonely. And we all know what that feels like and how much that can mess with your head after 2020. John is experiencing deep, profound suffering and pain and loneliness. And he's kind of hoping that the Messiah would come and rescue him. If the Messiah has a political agenda to get rid of Rome and to establish God's king, then surely Jesus should come and save him from jail. I mean, here is John, right? He is, if you imagine in a modern context, he is Lincoln Burrow waiting for his Michael Schofield to turn up with tattoos all over his body and break him out of Herod's prison. And yet none of this is happening. His message isn't being fulfilled. His life script is not playing out the way that he hoped it would play out. And so he begins to doubt. Are you the one or should we expect someone else? You know, when um, you've been waiting for God to take away that unwanted desire, that sin that you just wrestle with over and over and over again, and it, it just seems like a cycle, and yet God's not just taking it away. Or you thought God would bless you with good health, and the opposite is actually true. Or you became a Christian, right? And you were expecting that your life would get easier and it hasn't got easier, it's just got more complicated. Or maybe you were anticipating to grow in your faith. And last year you were like, yes, more of God, yes. And faith got harder for you. And there is a yawning gap between what you were hoping for, between your expectations and the reality you are now walking in. Well, Jesus' answer to John the Baptist here, and perhaps his answer to us, is to begin to align our expectations with the Word of God, with what God is doing, with God's agenda, to shift our expectations. Because this is what he says to him in verse 4. Have a look. Jesus replied to John's disciples, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf Here the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. See, what did they hear? They heard Jesus unpacking the law and teaching about the kingdom of God, unlike any other teacher who had come before him. They saw Jesus performing miracles. They saw people who were blind being able to see. They saw people who were crippled and paralyzed being able to walk and dance and run. They saw those who had infectious skin diseases walk away with perfectly clean and pure skin. They saw those who were once deaf being able to hear. And so Jesus says to John's disciples, go and give a report of what's been happening. But more than that, he says to them, go and remind John of what the Word of God says about the Messiah. Jesus quotes here from Isaiah 35. It's a scripture that John would have been all too familiar with. He's saying, this is the picture of the Messiah, John, the suffering servant from Isaiah. You won't find him in the courts of power. You'll find him on the streets with the people. 
You won't find him with the social elites. You'll find him with the poor. You won't find him mixing amongst the healthy, but the sick, the needy, the broken, the outcast. Do you remember Jesus doesn't launch his ministry at the center of the, you know, the, the, the biggest city center that he could find with the most influence and the most crowd. And, you know, he, he, he launches his ministry in Galilee. Not Sydney, not New York, not London, but Burke, Wagga Wagga, I don't know, some other small, Orange, some other small country town. He's not the type of Messiah that John was expecting. And so perhaps, John, your expectations were more about your hopes and your dreams than it was about God's plans and purposes. And he calls John to trust the Scriptures. So John, you've read the prophecy. You've read the word. What do you make of it? You have all the evidence that you need, John. Trust me. You notice here Jesus is very gentle with John's doubts. He's, he's all across scripture. He is so gentle with people who express doubt. You think of doubting Thomas, who was actually believing Thomas by the end of it, right? Jesus is gentle. He provides Thomas with the evidence that he asks for. Jesus does the same here with John. He's not offended by this. He doesn't say, come on, cuz. You of all people, I was expecting way more of you. You should know this. We're family. He doesn't say that. He, he doesn't say to him, come on. Come on, bro. You're, you're supposed to be my hype man. And your doubts, are, they're throwing shade on my vibes. Can you just get back on your soapbox and get angry and start yelling at people again? Because that's way better. He doesn't. He treats John with gentleness and grace and offers John the very thing that he needs. He says to John, I'm doing exactly what the Messiah was supposed to do. I'm preaching good news to the poor. I'm healing the sick. I'm dragging a little trail of heaven behind me everywhere I go. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the very same reason that Jesus gives for John the Baptist to believe is the same reason that he gives to us. Believe upon the words of the prophets and the works of the Messiah. What do you see? What do you hear? Jesus here issues a blessing, a beatitude. He says, blessed, in verse 6, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus is the stumbling rock or the cornerstone on which you would build your life. And those who recognize Jesus for who he is will be blessed, will be filled with joy. Blessed is the one who does not stumble, who does not fall, who does not fall away into unbelief on account of me. And then John's disciples leave. And they go back and they report to John what Jesus has told them. And John might have doubted about who Jesus was, but Jesus certainly has no doubts about who John is because he begins to brag on John after the disciples have left. This is what it says in verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd. He said, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Picture the, the reeds that grew in the Jordan River, and as the wind blew, they would blow back and forth. He said, you didn't go out to see a people-pleasing preacher who would just say whatever the times wanted them to say. No, you didn't see that. 
If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of woman, and that's everyone, right? Everyone is born of a woman. Among those of everyone who has ever been born on the face of the planet, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus positions John's ministry. He says he is the new Elijah. And in, in first century thought, Elijah was the one who would prepare the way for Yahweh, for the coming of the Lord. And Jesus is saying, get this, guys. John is the new Elijah. He is the one. He is the voice in the wilderness, like you've seen him, preparing the way for the Messiah. You couldn't get a clearer statement of who Jesus was than that. It's kind of like you know, when you brag on someone else to make yourself look good. Right? Jesus is bragging on John. He's like, John is, this is who he is. He's incredible. He's such a good support act. He's the best who's ever hit this stage. But I'm here as the main act. I've always kind of wondered why Jesus brags on John when the disciples have left, when they're out of earshot. And perhaps it's that Jesus wants John to have his identity secure in his adoption, that he wants John to trust in the scriptures or whatever. Maybe it is that he doesn't want John to see the complete fulfillment of his ministry until the very end. Who knows? But it's a weird way of doing it because I think we would just, oh, yeah, let's just puff John up. You're awesome, bro. Don't you Stop thinking so bad about yourself. You're incredible. You've done a great job. Good message. Just hang tight. Things will come through. You'll see in the end. And yet Jesus is making a point here about what we do with our understanding, about what we do with what's been revealed to us. You see, if John is the greatest prophet because of his proximity to Jesus, the last of the Old Testament prophets, if he is the greatest one and the person who is least in the kingdom is greater than him, that puts us in an incredible position. The person in this room who feels like the worst Christian, and right now you're probably thinking, yeah, that's me. We all think that. And the worst Christian in the room is greater than John the Baptist because we have experienced the fullness of the revelation of Jesus. We live this side of the cross, this side of the outpouring of the Spirit, this side of Pentecost. We have seen the resurrection, not with our eyes, but through the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And we have received a much fuller revelation and understanding of what God is doing than John did. He is the new Elijah, the one who was to come. So Jesus provides John with evidence, and then he provides his audience with a context to say, you guys who hear this, more is expected. But his recognition is that there are many who are just not satisfied with anything. Because he then turns his attention to the skeptic generation around him. He says this in a little parable about the generation, verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others, We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking and they say, 
he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. See, this generation that Jesus speaks of here, they wanted John to dance, but he was an angry, fiery prophet. And they wanted Jesus to hang out with the religious people, but instead he partied with the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. John came fasting and they wanted feasting. Jesus came feasting and they said he was a party animal. They are never satisfied. They are simply looking for excuses to dismiss the message that God is bringing. A skeptical generation. They're faced with the same message. They heard what Jesus said. They saw the works that Jesus had performed. But their conclusion was a rejection of Jesus. They're settled in their unbelief. I want to suggest the evidence is there. The words of prophecy fulfilled. The miracles of the Messiah. And so if you are here this morning or if you are watching online, And do not believe, do not worship, do not consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Can I commend to you the word of God and the works of the Messiah? These are the things upon which our faith is built. We don't believe on the evidence of some subjective experience. Like, I had a vision about God, you should believe. Or God's changed my life, you should believe. No, we point back to the scriptures, to the word of God. Believe upon the historic evidence of a man who walked the face of the planet and fulfilled over 600 individual prophecies in his life. This is Jesus. We've seen his word. We've seen his works. That ought to move us from unbelief to faith. Perhaps you would identify as a follower of Jesus and you're finding it hard to continue to do that in a secular age in a climate of skepticism in a season of life where there is a gap between your experience your sorry your expectations and your experience then maybe Jesus is calling us to shift our expectations and line them up with his word you know so often we begin to believe the lies of our culture that Jesus has just come to baptize your plans to make you healthy wealthy and wise and make your life comfortable and that or you know the the Australian dream that we would have an incredible job that pays really well and give us the most amount of time for leisure just to hang out go to the beach chill spend time with friends but Jesus has really just come to sanctify and baptize that vision of life and we begin to believe the lies of the culture instead of coming back to the word of God maybe Jesus is calling you this morning to shift your expectations bring them into alignment with God. Or maybe there's this just deep yearning and crisis of faith that you're experiencing. And my promise to you is that if you would seek God, He will meet you there. The doubt is not bad. It's not negative. It's what we do with doubt. You see, doubt left to fester will either drive us towards unbelief or drive us to deeper faith. It has to go in one or two one of two directions. I love that quote from the beginning. Doubt is a pain that cannot see that faith is his twin brother. A pain so lonely that it cannot see that faith is its twin brother. If we would wrestle through those 
doubts, that if we would trust the Scriptures and go back to the Word of God. I want to close this morning with a story of my friend, Linda, who walked through an extended season of doubt. Four years, she wrestled with doubt. She kept turning up to church. In fact, she was running youth ministry at the time, and she was wrestling with deep doubts over the Word of God. In fact, in order to try and wrestle through some of these doubts, she decided to go on an historic tour of Israel to see the very places and names that are recorded in the Scriptures. And she got there and she said, I feel no closer to God here than I do in my bedroom at home. It was a deep, deep crisis of faith for her. And then she began to pray. After years of of not praying, she began to pray And what she realized was that, in fact, this wasn't an intellectual objection. It was a heart issue. And as she wrestled with God, and remember, that's what it means to be the people of God. Israel wrestled with God. As she wrestled with God, He began to do a work in her heart and move her towards a deeper, more robust faith. Not that she never wrestles with doubt anymore. But God began to use her prayers to answer her doubts. She began to lean in and experience God's presence. You know, the whole of the Christian life can be summed up in that one phrase, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but I'm struggling. Help my unbelief. Wherever you're at this morning, you're experiencing that yawning gap between what you hope for and what's really happening in your life. I want you to know that God has not gone anywhere. He loves you. He's for you. He's given us all the evidence that we need if we would lean in and encounter Him. We're going to do that right now as we worship together. In fact, I love that line of that that first song. Can we just go back to the Father's house? There was Murray picked the songs this week and it was brilliant first or second line of that song there I'm sorry production team but I know I'm 3 minutes and 21 seconds over line, next one what a, what a beautiful line that is what looks to me like weakness is a canvas for your strength what looks to me like weakness is a canvas for your strength doubts are but a canvas for God to fill in with the colour of belief in our lives our prayer is that he would do that for you. So I invite you to stand. Let's pray together as we prepare to worship. Father God, we thank you that you are good to us. We thank you that you've not left us in the dark, but you have revealed yourself to us. You've shown us. You've given us all the evidence we, believe, we need. And God, we believe. But if we're honest, we need help. Help us believe. Help us be people who would cling to the truth of your word. God, strengthen our faith. May this church be a community that is not afraid of doubt, not afraid of deconstruction, but would find the answers that we need in those moments that our faith would be stronger and more robust. God, we pray that you would strengthen us. Help us encounter Jesus afresh. We ask this in his strong name. And all of God's people said.